My name is Nitai Daitel, Senior Program Officer at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. I am pleased to introduce our guests for today's interview, exploring China's transformational leaders and the unique foreign policy courses they charted in China's quest for security, prosperity, and power. Briefly, as their full bios can be found on our website. Sui Sheng Zhao is a professor and director of the Center for China-U.S. Cooperation at the University of Denver's Joseph Corbell School of International Studies. He is the founder and editor of the Journal of Contemporary China and the author or editor of more than two dozen books, including his most recent book, The Dragon Roars Back, Transformational Leaders and Dynamics of Chinese Foreign Policy. Moderating the interview today will be Sheena Chestnut Greitens, Associate Professor at the University of Texas at Austin, where she directs the Asia Policy Program. Dr. Greitens' first book, Dictators and Their Secret Police, Coercive Institutions and State Violence was published in 2016. And she is now working on a book about how China thinks about national security under Xi Jinping. She is a fellow of the National Committee's Public Intellectuals Program. Sheena, the floor is yours. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity to moderate the conversation today. I am really looking forward to discussing uh, this book, which I, I have here, if Zoom will let me show it. Um, the Dragon Roars Back, Transformational Leaders and Dynamics of Chinese Foreign Policy. Um, it's a terrific and interesting read about three leaders, uh, Mao Zedong, Deng Xiaoping, and Xi Jinping, and how they have transformed China's foreign policy since the founding of the PRC in 1949. Um, so it's really a pleasure to be able to talk uh, to Professor Zhao today about the book. Um, and, uh, and I wanted to open it up by asking you a bit about the story that led to writing this book. You've written a, a number of books and, and worked on a number of edited volumes. And I'm always interested in the origin stories behind uh, books that authors choose to write. And so I wondered if you could start by telling us a little bit about how you decided to write this book and why you thought it was needed in the conversation about China and Chinese foreign policy now. Uh, first of all, let me uh, thank the uh, National Committee for hosting this event and also thank uh, Professor Shina uh, uh, for uh, uh, moderating this event. To answer this question, I think uh, two uh, motivations uh, for me to start uh, doing research and uh, writing the book. First, uh, one is theoretical, the other is uh, empirical. Theoretically, uh, I have uh, tried to find a coherent uh, understanding of the China rise, uh, try to understand the trajectory of uh, its uh, rise and uh, forces driving this uh, rise. The most uh, prominent theory that uh, has been used to explain China's rise is so-called structural realism, which argues uh, looking at the relative power. Uh, when China's uh, relative power expands its ambition, uh, expense, uh, a rising China in terms of relative power will inevitably uh, becomes uh, uh, aggressive uh, power challenging the US uh, and uh, become, uh, I mean, anti-status quo challenging its neighbors. But looking at uh, almost uh, over 70 years of the PRC history, uh, we can tell that uh, China foreign policy has many uh, turns and shifts. Uh, in fact, Mao Zedong, uh, he 
well, I mean, Mao Zedong had what I called revolutionary foreign policy, which was a very aggressive, uh, uh, confrontational. Uh, but China's relative power was very weak. China fought six wars during Mao's time, including the war in Korea, fighting against the most powerful nation, the US on the earth. And uh, China also fighting wars with the Soviet Union supported uh, insurgencies all over the world. But China's power was not that powerful. Deng Xiaoping moderated China's uh, uh, foreign policy behavior, uh, while China's relative power did not change that much. In fact, when China was rising, uh, uh, Deng Xiaoping's successors, uh, uh, Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao, uh, tried to pretend China was not a rising power. And uh, they continued Deng Xiaoping's low-profile, moderate uh, foreign policy. Now Xi Jinping has changed Chinese foreign policy again, and uh, his rhetoric of Chinese uh, rising power and uh, as ambition has been really alarming to the world. But China's uh, relative power now, I think, has not increased that much uh, more than uh, last year's of uh, Hu Jintao's year. In fact, the Chinese economy slowed down now. Many people now arguing that uh, Hu Jintao, uh, uh, Xi Jinping is overreact, overreached, and uh, overplayed uh, his hand. So this situation uh, makes the structuralism somehow inadequate to understand Chinese foreign pol policy. Another theory used very often is so-called regime type theory. They argue that uh, China's aggressive behavior is driven by authoritarian system. Uh, for ch any change of Chinese foreign policy, you have to have regime change. But Chinese authoritarian system has remained, but Chinese foreign policy has shifted, changed in the last 70 years. So this theory is also problematic. Then there are other theories, institutional uh, theory and constructivist theory. I don't want to get into them, but uh, they, neither none of them uh, is uh, sufficient. So I try to develop uh, a comprehensive uh, uh, theoretical approach that could integrate all those theories, all those forces. So this is the empirical, this is theoretical motivation. The second part is uh, uh, empirical theory, uh, motivation. Because I'm teaching Chinese foreign policy uh, seminar at a graduate level for many years, uh, I try to find a really comprehensive book that uh, could uh, uh, integrate all the variables and uh, uh, have all those uh, uh, aspects and also have uh, historical uh, uh, in-depth as well as up-to-date analysis. I mean, strangely, uh, I cannot find one. And most books uh, uh, are only country-specific, China relationship with uh, uh, certain countries or by natural relationship, China's uh, foreign policy on certain issue areas such as energy or uh, some other uh, issue areas. Uh, and uh, really th that type of comprehensive uh, historical in-depth and up-to-date and uh, uh, th this type of uh, books are lack. So I thought maybe I should do a comprehensive book for the last 70 years uh, other than the theoretical approach and also have uh, uh, rich empirical uh, analysis. So that's my, those are two motivations uh, uh, get me to start research on this book. 
That's great. Thank you. Um, so the argument of your book, the core argument could, and I, I realize this is an oversimplification, so please forgive this, but could be actually be summed up in two words, leaders matter. And um, you talk about, about that uh, over the course of successive chapters, where you describe transformational leaders, Mao, Deng, and Xi, um, as different from almost more custodial leaders like Jiang Zemin or Hu Jintao. And so I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about more about why leaders are so important in what is a single party, non-democratic political system. And this book uh, developed what I, what I call the leadership-centered framework uh, to understand the dynamics of Chinese foreign policy. As you said, I argue that the leaders matter, but they matter more in authoritarian uh, totalitarian uh, systems. Uh, in democratic uh, systems, they matter for sure, but uh, leaders are constrained by oppositional parties, uh, public opinions, uh, uh, term limits, many things. But the uh, leaders uh, in China, I mean, the top paramount leaders in China, Chinese, Leninist one-party system where the emphasis is on discipline and hierarchy. They are relatively unchecked, unconstrained by public opinions, uh, and uh, they don't have uh, uh, oppositional parties. Uh, and those three top, I mean, powerful, most powerful leaders, they all held lifetime tenure. So the puzzle for me to talking about leadership-centered uh, uh, research is that uh, uh, although all those Chinese leaders are powerful in authoritarian system, but not every leader has been able to chart a new direction or new cause for Chinese foreign policy. Why? Then I try to see who are these leaders, and uh, I distinguish them into three types. One is uh, what you mentioned, a transformational leader. These are game changers. They have a new visions, and also they have political wisdoms to navigate uh, the jungle of uh, PRC um, power politics to prevail uh, their vision. Now, in addition, they are also able to mobilize domestic sources. That's what I talked about, the ideational sources, uh, and institutional sources, and also strategically respond to the uh, international power distribution and uh, international norms, regimes, all those type of order type norm norms uh, in order to advance their agenda. So uh, we can see uh, what I studied in the book, Mao Zedong, Deng Xiaoping, and Xi Jinping, are transformational leaders. The second type of uh, leaders, what I you, you call Cadillian, I call the trans, transactional leaders. Uh, and they manages to- uh, Thank uh, you, I, I mistermed it. I appreciate the correction. <laughs> no, no problem, that's, maybe that's a better term. <laughs> and uh, uh, they survived the, the power jungle, and uh, but they, uh, don't have normally will now have new regions and uh, they follow the course set by their uh, um, predecessors. In this case, uh, uh, we talk about two leaders, uh, uh, Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao. And they uh, followed a set on course of uh, set by Deng Xiaoping. 
The third type of leader, what I called failed leaders. There are three failed leaders, uh, Hua Guofeng and uh, uh, Zhao Ziyang, Hu Yaobang. They might have new visions, especially uh, Hu Jintao, not Hu Jintao, Hu Yaobang and uh, Zhao Ziyang, but they lost power in the jungle of power struggle. So it doesn't matter, who cares if you have new vision or not. So these three types of leaders uh, determined uh, the cause of Chinese foreign policy dynamics. Only those transformation leaders uh, being able to make changes. So my book focused and documented the three transformational leaders and how they have uh, motiv motivated resources and to prevail, to make their visions prevail. Thank you. I wanted to focus on the current leadership in China because Xi Jinping is one of these leaders that you identify as a, a transformational figure and a transformational leader for Chinese foreign policy. And you talk a bit in the book about how 2008 was a turning point for China's adoption of what you call big power diplomacy, which is the approach that has really characterized Xi Jinping's tenure thus far. And so I wanted to ask you a little bit about why you think 2008 was such an important watershed year um, and maybe implicitly, you know, why not 2012 when Xi Jinping formally came to power? Um, what is it about 2008 that makes it such a turning point for Chinese foreign policy in your, in your assessment? Both 2008 and uh, 2012 uh, were landmark years uh, in the Chinese political development. Here we are talking about uh, uh, foreign policy transition. Uh, why 2020, why 2008? were significant because that was the year China successfully host, hosted uh, the Summer Olympics and uh, China's national pride uh, surged. Uh, they thought that, that was a symbol China went, uh, walked out the shadow of the humiliation and the segment of Asia, all those type of the past uh, 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 problems. And China was recognized by the world as the uh, rising power or big power. And uh, then following the Olympic was the financial uh, meltdown started in the US and spotted all over the world. And China weathered at that time, the financial crisis relatively uh, better than the Western countries. That also uh, raised the national, uh, uh, nationalist aspiration. But this aspiration has, was, however, uh, kind of uh, suppressed from Chinese perspective, or they were frustrated by the Western powers' uh, non-recognition of the China's uh, rising power status and uh, China's nationalist uh, aspiration. And the Western powers uh, try to undermine China's rise uh, during the Olympic, for example, they talk about uh, the Western and try to scrutinize uh, China's domestic human rights issue and uh, boycott some countries and uh, on China. And also, I mean, the, the, the touch, the Olympic touch, um, and layover and uh, Tibetan issue, all those issues. Uh, the financial crisis was uh, also a similar situation. They thought uh, China was doing uh, well and the US was in trouble, US was in decline, US supposed to respect uh, China's uh, uh, core national interest. In fact, that was the time that this term core national interest uh, occurred uh, first time 
but they were frustrated. Again, U.S. Uh, did not respect China's core national interest uh, and did not uh, respect China's uh, uh, those interests, which defined as uh, non-negotiable and cannot be compromised. Taiwan issue that and uh, uh, so-called political system and development rights, all those all those things. So 2008 in that context became a turning point. China, Chinese people were motivated to uh, get back China to the rightful place uh, in the world. And so that, uh, that groundwork for Xi Jinping came to power 2012 to launch so-called big power uh, diplomacy and to present so-called the China dream. In fact, the days after Xi Jinping became the general secretary of the Communist Party, November 2012, he went to the National Museum and presented that famous speech of the China dream of the great rejuvenation, Wida Fuxing. That, that, that speech really presented himself as a strong leader, strong man to bring China back to its lost glory and glorious uh, position to bring China back to the central stage of the world. In fact, that's why 2008 was significant. Equally significant was 2012. Uh, at this time, Xi Jinping became uh, the, the leader. In fact, uh, he came to office, not only presented the China dream, uh, our China big power diplomacy, he um, formally uh, abandoned Deng Xiaoping's uh, developmental uh, moderation. In fact, in my book, talk about Deng Xiaoping's developmental diplomacy and uh, presented China as a big power to somehow uh, expand its uh, expanded uh, interests. And uh, 2012 was also uh, significant uh, in terms of his consolidation power. Uh, Xi Jinping's consolidation of power, I think, is driven or triggered by three developments. The first is what I mentioned, 2008 starts that kind of nationalist uh, aspiration and frustration. The second was uh, somehow also frustration of the Chinese elites about Xi, uh, Hu Jintao's weakness of his uh, uh, connective leadership, uh, which brought so many factional strifles uh, 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 and also his weakness uh, to resist those kind of liberal values. So Xi Jinping uh, came to office at the time and try to launch ideological campaign, everything tried to send him as a defender of the one party role. The third trigger was the scandals, uh, also during 2012, uh, Lin and uh, Zhou Yongkang and uh, Bo Xilai, those things. So 2012 uh, really presented so many uh, new developments for Xi Jinping, not only to become the general secretary of the Communist Party, but also become strongman to lead China, to chart China for new cause, both domestically and internationally. That's why I talk about 2008 and 2012 as uh, landmarks of the Chinese political and the foreign policy development. Thank you, that's really helpful. I was in Beijing studying, doing language study as a graduate student in 2008. Um, so it was a sort of turning point in a lot of my own per personal perceptions of China. 
Um, but I'm not sure I realized how embedded at the time it was in some of the larger currents that are that have been globally impactful that that your book describes. So um, I know I appreciated that part of the, the book in particular. At one point, relatively early in the book, um, you talk about the intersection of external and internal security concerns, which is a particular interest of mine, um, but also has drawn a lot of attention as China's behavior has become more repressive politically at home and more uh, assertive in its security, the security aspects of its foreign policy abroad. Um, and so Beijing pays a lot of attention to this connection between internal and, and external security, especially, frankly, I think under, under Xi Jinping with the use of the comprehensive national security concept um, and some of the reforms that he's made to the national security system. And, um, and so I wanted to ask you then, how you think, you talk about China's efforts to remold the international environment throughout the book. And I wanted to ask you how, how you see um, international security concerns shaping China's effort to remold the, the global environment. When Xi Jinping came to office, he started a new direction for Chinese uh, foreign policy, which is uh, in, in the book, I use the big power uh, diplomacy foreign policy, which uh, becomes a more expen expensive or uh, aggressive, try to not only abandon uh, uh, Deng Xiaoping's uh, low-profile uh, foreign policy, uh, but also try to expand uh, China, China's uh, interests and also proactively uh, uh, shape international environment rather than uh, uh, react to it. And uh, in that uh, context, you can see Xi Jinping had the uh, so-called uh, uh, wolf warrior fighting uh, spread uh, and uh, uh, best nine thinking, try to draw red lines uh, uh, for foreign countries. Uh, so a lot of new changes uh, in, in his foreign policy, which result um, caused resistance, pushbacks and uh, um, uh, uh, backlash in the international arena. So from Xi Jinping's perspective, he began, became, became, I think, somehow uh, uh, insecure and thought China's uh, uh, security environment has been deteriorated internationally. But Xi Jinping took, looks at uh, uh, security or China's uh, threat uh, from internal uh, nets, because he thought those foreign forces was not only uh, uh, opposing uh, China, it's trying to undermine Chinese communist regime and his personal power. So he always linked, looking at the external threat in terms of their linkage to the domestic threat. So that's why uh, you talked about he developed so-called the uh, Zongti Anquan Guan. I call, I translate into holistic uh, uh, security uh, outlook. Uh, you can also translate it as a, a overall uh, security uh, outlook or comprehensive security outlook. But that has uh, that covers in his. Uh, in fact, he uh, he also intentionally makes some uh, responses to this. Is that his tablet is called. Uh, uh, State Security Commission uh, in 2013, uh, which is uh, his uh, child, uh, brainchild, because uh, it is uh, intuition to be in charge uh, of uh, both domestic security and in, uh, external security. 
In fact, uh, Fergus has been on domestic security. He, in his first speech to the uh, National Security Council 2014, he presented 11 aspects of uh, security threats. The key here is what he called political security or political threat. It's a code word uh, for regime security. So he has emphasized, I mean, he has uh, this intuition to focus on domestic security. In that case, he upgraded the uh, Foreign Affairs District Group into a Foreign Affairs Commission to focus on external security foreign policy. So he has entire intuitional arrangement try to uh, try to deal with the secure linkage between domestic uh, threat and international threat. Domestic threat here, uh, not only those kind of a protests, uh, discontent among Chinese people, but here he talked about those threats linking to foreign threat, mostly the Hong Kong issue, uh, Xinjiang issue, and uh, um, uh, uh, Tibet issue. Those are typical issues. Uh, linking domestic threat and external threat. He has spent so much time on those issues and also made significant policy shift on those issues. Without Xi Jinping, we'll not see Hong Kong change that much in that several years. Well, there have been many changes in Hong Kong, no question, over the course of the of Xi Jinping's tenure. I wanted to ask you, um, I, as we, we near the end of the, our time here, I wanted to ask you a bit about what your book tells us looking forward at the future direction of China's foreign policy and its global diplomacy. In the past year, China has announced a global development initiative. It, last April, Xi Jinping announced this global security initiative. And China has also had to respond to the global pandemic, as well as the Russian invasion and war in Ukraine. Um, and so I wanted to ask you a bit about how you think these policies fit under the framework of big power diplomacy, and where are where is Xi Jinping's foreign policy likely headed in the next five years, in, in the remainder of his third term? Uh, China, Xi Jinping has met a lot of uh, new initiatives since he came to office uh, on the foreign policy front uh, before 2011, when you mentioned that the global development initiative, the most uh, important initiative people talk mostly uh, was uh, uh, Bell Road initiative, and maybe also Asian Development Infrastructure Development uh, Bank, but those were mostly uh, at a regional level and also uh, economic uh, issue focused. Uh, not, uh, um, year after, I mean, several years after, those initiatives have not really done well. And uh, 2011, uh, uh, 2021, uh, Xi Jinping proposed so-called the Global uh, Development Initiative in the UN. And, uh, and then the next year, as you said, last year, he proposed the uh, 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 Global Security Initiative. Uh, and these the initiatives are um, much broader than the Bell Road initiative. Although at this uh, moment, they, are, they have not gone beyond the abstract uh, concept. Uh, we don't see many specific uh, policy uh, contents uh, among those initiatives. But that reflect Xi Jinping's, I should say, 
his uh, uh, foreign policy aspiration, one of them uh, is try to reshape uh, global order, which has been constructed under the US leadership. And uh, US has been dominant in this system. So he thought uh, those uh, US dominated uh, uh, order, rules, norms, everything, uh, disadvantaged uh, emerging powers, particularly China. So China wanted to uh, reform, in his word, uh, reform those order. So these initiatives uh, are parts of uh, his efforts to reform uh, global governance, international uh, order. Uh, among these two initiatives you mentioned, I thought the global security initiative uh, was more catching uh, eyes because uh, it targeted directly on the US alliance uh, uh, partner uh, system. And uh, among these initiatives, there is a term which I think is really interesting, invisible security. In other words, a typical the Chinese uh, thinking you, uh, uh, you cannot uh, uh, keep your own security at expense of other states' security. Here is talking about you cannot interfere, inter uh, intervene in my domestic affairs. And this also behind uh, Xi Jinping thinking to support Russia. You talk about Russian invasion of Ukraine because uh, uh, the rationale here was the NATO expansion uh, damaged Russian security. And uh, China in that context uh, uh, supported uh, that security concepts against uh, the US uh, dominated uh, uh, alliances and the partner system. Uh, another thing you mentioned uh, was uh, China's uh, uh, partnerships with Russia and uh, now also Iran, Iranian president just visited uh, China and Xi Jinping agreed to, and to have a return visit to Iran. This is also China's efforts in confrontation with the United States. In fact, uh, in my book, I mentioned that uh, uh, Xi Jinping's uh, foreign big power uh, policy, very essence was in confrontation with the United States. So this country shared China's grievance against the US dominance in the world. So China has been worked with these countries, which I don't know if uh, they could uh, really get what they want. So those are the problems. And uh, the pandemic and any other issues, uh, also China uh, has uh, tried to use these uh, to pr promote a China model, which I don't think is successful. So China has tried to reform, uh, rewrite the rules of global order and also to undermine the US predominance in the world, try to reestablish China's centrality in the world stage. So that's what I think a big power diplomacy is. How far China can go, I don't know. There are many concerns now, Xi Jinping power concentration in my book talked about, may lead China to disasters, in fact. Uh, and also his power concentration has uh, led to a lot of uncertainties of China's future. And uh, so I, because time limit, I will not go further details on those issues. So many interesting developments worth our attention. There are so many more, and I have a long list of questions that I could continue to ask you. Um, but I've really enjoyed the chance to talk to you about the about this book, and um, would encourage everyone to take a look at the the full book and to read each of its chapters. Um, there's a lot there to unpack, and um, I really appreciate you taking the time today. 
to share the the insights and the arguments from the the book with us. Um, so thank you again for uh, for joining us and uh, best of luck with sharing the the book's message and the the insights um, that you have with uh, with all of us. Thank you. Thank you, Sheriff, for such a wonderful job to moderate this event. Thank you. Fantastic. Well, thank you both so much for, for sharing your thoughts and insights with us today. Um, I'd also like to thank uh, the National Committee staff members behind the scenes who have made today's interview possible. I uh, would hope those who have uh, tuned in found the interview both interesting uh, and informative and are ready to continue to pull the thread um, on, uh, on Dr. Zhao's book and, and hope that you will join us for future National Committee programming. Uh, thank you all again and have a great day. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.